I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we continue our coverage of Gaza, Hamas, Israel, etc. This time with Christopher W. Jones, an assistant professor at Union University who has written on ISIS, the Islamic State, and specializes in ancient history, his expertise, believe it or not, may have some value in understanding Hamas and their strategy as of late. We're going to be talking about that, the strategy of atrocity, as he calls it, as well as, in the early portion of the show, the potential calculus behind the Hamas attack, all that and more in the conversation to follow. Let's get right to it with Christopher W. Jones. Welcome to Parallax News, guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with. Uh, he is an assistant professor at Union University. Uh, his PhD is from Columbia. He's a historian of the ancient world, has a focus on the ancient world, but I thought he had some uh, interesting commentary on the recent events uh, unfolding in the Middle East with the Hamas attack and uh, everything else just happening at a million miles uh, per minute now. How are you doing, Christopher W. Jones? Uh, doing well. Uh, all hanging hanging together. Um, obviously, the the news coming out is is very very distressing and uh, difficult to process, but. What led you to uh, tweet about the Hamas attack? You, you um, made some commentary that went viral concerning what may be the calculus of Hamas. Could you speak to that? Mm -hmm. um, 
reading a lot of of bad commentary that didn't didn't add up with the uh, kinds of things that we've we know are going on in the in the region and uh, the kinds of things that uh, well I know there was a lot of speculation about uh, the role of Iran or Russia and you know all these major outside powers uh, and also, I mean, I've, I've had experience studying ISIS, uh, written about ISIS, uh, written about motivation for some of their, their crimes. Uh, and um, so, so seeing some similarities there led me to, uh, to offer some comments. Uh, what do you think the motivation and calculus for the attack may have been. And uh, I guess after, after we discuss that aspect, we can get into why now based on, you know, I know this mm-hmm. is speculative, but I, I think your thoughts mm-hmm. are invaluable. Yeah. So according to Hamas, uh, the attack was done because of changes in the status quo in Jerusalem. Uh, but that's been Hamas's justification for pretty much everything they've ever done is to defend Jerusalem. Um, I think it probably the timing has to do with a couple of things. Uh, one is Israel's been in a months long political crisis. Uh, attention has been turned away from Gaza. It's been turned inwards among the senior political leadership. Uh, Then there have been reports that a lot of troops were withdrawn to the West Bank because of the unrest there uh, in recent months. And then uh, what I think is possibly most important is that uh, word has gone public that the Biden administration was mediating some productive talks between Israel and Saudi Arabia on normalization, uh, which has always been kind of the holy grail for Israeli uh, Sunni normalization um, and the hopes that because of the Saudis have a large amount of influence uh, in the wider Sunni Islamic world. Um, so, you know, it's long been thought that once Saudi Arabia normalizes ties with Israel, then, you know, many other countries would, would follow. Uh, now, what does, what would normalization mean for Hamas and for Palestinian nationalism in general is it would mean that their most natural allies and fellow Sunni Muslims would be putting their issue on the on the back burner. Uh, they would just more or less set it aside as uh, being of secondary importance, uh, which would be a disaster for their movement. So, you know, groups like Hamas have you know been argue long been arguing for armed resistance. Uh, they. You know, the problem is arguing for armed resistance, that armed resistance will work if you just give it a chance, requires that you be winning victories. Uh, You know, normalization between Israel and the Arab world has always been kind of a a triangular calculation between relations with 
Israel, the U.S., and their own people. And, you know, when when Egypt, for example, signed the Camp David Accords, Sadat was trying to move Egypt out of the Soviet orbit into the U.S. orbit. Uh, and in order to do that, he needed to end the conflict with Israel. Uh, and so, you know, he made a calculation that we're not going to win the conflict with Israel militarily there, you know, but he, he still needed a victory. Don't get me wrong. He still he got his victory in 73. And then, you know, that gave him the space to maneuver for a diplomatic solution. Right. Uh, you know, now Sadat was really playing some next level chess between 1973 and 1979. So I I, I don't want to compare him to what what Hamas is doing. Uh, what Hamas is doing is much more basic in its logic. I think it's that we needed to that they decided to stage an attack so massive and so brutal that. Israel would be forced to launch a major ground offensive into the Gaza Strip. And this would, you know, either they will defeat Israel militarily inside the Gaza Strip, in which case they can claim that, uh, you know, resistance. They can claim that this still... form of violent resistance works. Exactly. Yeah. And that it can still work. Uh, and that there's no need to normalize with Israel and possibly make it politically impossible for Saudi Arabia to, for example, to take this step. Um, you mean because uh, Sunni Arab countries, their populaces would see uh, the massive retaliation, the military response against Gaza and just be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm not for this normalization. That's part of it. Uh, but that alone doesn't, you know, they could provoke, provoke a massive military retaliation against Gaza with a much lesser attack. They have to do it in a way that shows that they can fight Israel and win. Uh, you know, there have been plenty of, I mean, the the conflict two years ago, there was a heavy loss of life in Gaza, uh, but very little loss of life within Israel uh, because of the yeah the uh, the way that they were fighting. So rather than firing rockets that usually don't hit anything or get shot down, they had to to carry out an attack in such a way that would. Yeah, that involved murdering thousands of people. Uh, and that, yeah, that the reason that that's seen as winning, uh, that they have done something to Israel that Israel couldn't stop them from doing. That they Wait, they've, they've exposed Israel. a weakness. Yeah, they've exposed a weakness. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um that, you know, it's not just that the world Arab world sees videos of Palestinians suffering. It's that they see videos of Israelis suffering and know that Hamas did this. Um, In that regard, even merely pulling off the attack is almost like a, a victory in itself for Hamas in some ways, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, pulling it off is a victory. Uh, taking the hostages that Israel has a long history of trading thousands of Palestinian prisoners to get back a single soldier. Uh, you know, how many are they going to trade for 130 to 150? Uh, they've even talked about trying to negotiate the release of Hamas uh, fundraisers who are imprisoned in the United States. Uh, they, you know, pulling that off, yes, is a is a victory and, uh, you know, a victory large enough to the point that the only way it could be diminished would be if Hamas were completely obliterated and removed from power in the aftermath. But in that regard, and I'll get back to some of the questions I had written down here, but in, in that regard, why why would Hamas take such a gamble then? Uh, because, I mean, as you've written in your tweets, I mean, this is a huge gamble for Hamas to take. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's, I mean, is it just a matter of they, they just saw no other options or what was it? Uh, that's a that's a good question. And I, I agree it's a huge gamble for, uh, I mean, for a number of reasons. One is that, you know, with a certain sector of the Middle East, you know, all the horrible footage that we've been seeing is going to play well. A certain sector of people. Um, and that's going to make Hamas seem strong. And that's going to make Hamas seem powerful. And that's going to make Hamas seem their strategy of resist violent resistance seem viable. Uh, but in Europe and the North America, this is, you know, this is uh, where a lot of popular sympathy for Hamas and the Palestinian cause is rooted in perceived victimhood. Uh, this is, has, you know, we've seen a really the absolute horrific brutality that we've seen really undercuts that the victimhood uh narrative right um and a yeah, lot just, of just the death of civilians uh the, the music festival massacre this uh yeah. i think has killed a lot of goodwill yes uh but in a it, it traps them in a paradox where in order to remain victims you can't be winning and if you start winning, then you're not victims anymore. And that's uh, that's where the Hamas finds themselves in a hard place is they need to somehow prove that violent resistance is viable, but also maintain victim status. Uh, and that's seems to have been driving a lot of their strategy in the past 15 years is how do we how do we do this? Uh, and a lot of it's come down to do small actions that provoke large Israeli responses. You know, people see that, you know, massively lopsided death tolls like they did in 2021, and that, you know, generates the perception of, of victimhood. Now, here, they, this is definitely a change in strategy. Uh, it's, you know, I called it on Twitter uh, going full ISIS uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the level of brutality that was seen in these attacks was something that, you know, the world 
last saw in the fall of Mosul in 2014 and, and it's aftermath. Uh, and this, yeah, it, um, as to why they would change this strategy, I think, and, you know, I don't have any special sources inside Hamas's leadership or, or anything, but it seems to me that the strategy of victimhood, they maybe thought had played itself out in a sense that it wasn't really slowing down the tide of normalization uh, that uh, started with the Abraham Accords with the United Arab Emirates. And then, you know, if it possibly was about to continue with Saudi Arabia, uh, because those states have concluded that or were on the either concluded or were on the verge of concluding that the Palestinian cause could not be one. It was neither good nor is neither likely nor desirable for uh, armed resistance to succeed. Uh, and so uh, with the, at the, you know, if normalization with Saudi Arabia had happened, if, uh, you know, that, that it's a cascaded even further to normalization with say Pakistan or Indonesia, uh, it would have left Hamas very isolated and completely dependent on the Shia axis uh, for for support. And you know, they're if you're seen solely as an Iran proxy, you're going to get a lot less sympathy and support both in. Uh, you know, Western Europe and the United States and in the Sunni world than you otherwise uh, could hope for. So is some of this calculus then potentially that, yeah, we'll lose sort of the sympathy of, you know, maybe Western countries, uh, but we could gain support from certain Arab countries? At the very least, you could, I think there's a hope that they'll stop losing support. Um, now a lot of, a lot of their hope I think is being pinned on the outcome of the battles that are now underway or that, uh, you know, if Hamas can successfully repel a ground invasion of Gaza, it is, as you said, it's a huge gamble, but, you know, they can claim to be, you know, Hezbollah has staked a lot of legitimacy on claiming to be the only Arab army that defeated Israel. Uh, if Hamas can claim to be the second, this is going to build them a lot of support, uh, partly in the wider Middle East, but also within the Palestinian territories themselves, right? You know, the West Bank has never been, Hamas has always had a presence in the West Bank, but it's never been their stronghold. That's always been Gaza. That's where the movement started. That's where they had the most support. Uh, you know, the, the West Bank has been taken much more of the, 
you know, support much more uh, aligned with Fatah and the, you know, the secular Arab nationalist uh, ideology. Uh, Whereas Hamas is more this Islamic fundamentalist movement. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, Hamas was a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood that uh, that's where it originates from. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify, too, because I I think it's hard for people that are unfamiliar with these topics. I don't want people to get confused and think that mm-hmm. when I say Hamas, that that's synonymous with all of the uh, Palestinian cause. I mean, it's a faction within. Mm-hmm. So yes. I, I just want to clarify yes. that for people. Mm-hmm. So then, um, so where do you see Hezbollah fitting into all of this? Because it, it seems like they may be getting involved now. I, I don't know what the latest news is. It's been hard going through it yeah. all. Yeah, this is uh, seems like a a lot of uh, confusion in the latest reports. Um, it's not not real clear what's going on. Um, I would say so. Hezbollah has already done more than they've done in the past. Whenever there was a conflict in Gaza, you know, two thousand nine, two thousand twelve, two thousand fourteen, two thousand twenty one. Their response was to watch it on TV, issue some statements, and not really do anything else uh this time there have been some some minor attacks some minor rocket launches uh, hezbollah reported at least a few of their soldiers had been killed um there were uh you know but it's also a lot of that a lot of the fighting in the north could be from palestinian militant groups that are based inside lebanon um it's not real clear who's necessarily doing the the fighting. Um, so the great fear in Israel is that Hezbollah will launch some sort of all-out attack on the north of Israel to create a two-front war. Uh, I I'm not that's not impossible. Um, I think what's more likely is sort of what we see now, all these little minor skirmishes, and it's a diversion to keep force Israel to keep a lot of troops in the north that could otherwise have been used against Gaza. Um, why do I not think Hezbollah would uh, would launch the uh, full-scale attack, or why I would think it would be less likely? is that a that lebanon basically hezbollah has more to lose than hamas they're not backed into a corner in the same way uh, they have a you know a secure position within lebanon um they but because of that they have more to lose in a conflict than hamas does uh they um, you know, Lebanon's currently in a very deep economic crisis, um, real, re- really bad breakdown of, uh, of financial everything. Um, and this, you know, a devastating war on top of that is really going to cause uh, a lot of problems. Um so uh two i mean hezbollah you know they they talk about freeing palestine and 
marching on Jerusalem and, and whatnot. But I think is Israel left Lebanon 23 years ago. Uh, they haven't, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they're, there's not really, uh, a more personal motive there as there is for, for Hamas. Um, and then finally, it, it seems that just kind of reading the tea leaves between the movement of the U.S. carrier strike group and some comments that have been made by the Pentagon, some comments that have been made by Israeli uh, IDF chief of staff, that the United States has sent some back channel messages to Tehran that says, essentially that if Hezbollah launches a major offensive, then the United States will enter the war on the side of Israel. Um, so that could uh, be an additional deterrent towards um, towards Hezbollah launching a full-scale uh, attack. So what I, what I would expect them to do is try to walk right up to that line, but not farther trying to figure out exactly where the line is that would trigger, you know, a U.S. intervention and not cross it. So then I also wanted to ask about, uh, you know, I know Turkey and Qatar have made statements. There was talk of uh, being mediators or doing negotiations mm -hmm. between Hamas and Israel. I don't know where that stands now, uh, but maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, Turkey and Qatar in relation to all of this. I know Erdogan has released some uh, statements uh, with his thoughts about Israel and whatnot at this mm -hmm. moment. Yeah, so Turkey has often uh, taken on a mediating role uh, because they're, uh, um, you know, Sunni Muslim majority country. Uh, Erdogan has made a lot of pro-Palestinian comments, but they also have diplomatic relations with Israel uh, and have for a long time. Um, and, you know, they used to have much closer relations before Erdogan's, uh, party came to power. Um, but yeah, they still sometimes take on a mediating role. Same with Egypt, right? Egypt has contacts in Gaza, but they also have contacts in Israel. Hamas and Israel, they often negotiate in Egypt and they, you know, representatives don't meet in the same room with each other. They won't. They won't appear in the same room together, but they sit in different rooms and the Egyptian diplomats walk back and forth with the proposals uh, and then take comments and then go back to the other room. Um, Qatar, on the other hand, is a main backer of Hamas. Uh, they have, you know, Hamas's senior political leadership lives in Qatar. Uh, Qatar is also home to a major U.S. military base. Uh, has been a major U.S. ally in the region. Um, that makes Qatar kind of the go-between for the United States to engage in diplomacy, right? Uh, Qatar doesn't have diplomatic relations with Israel, but the United States can lean on Qatar, who can then lean on Hamas, uh, and try to, and you know, the United States can then pass things from Qatar to Israel. Uh, now, both of them called for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, to be clear, an immediate ceasefire now means Hamas wins the war. Hamas themselves have said, oh, yeah, we're ready for a ceasefire now. 
uh, you know, the day after the attack, we, well, we've achieved all our objectives. Uh, That's actually what I wanted to talk about next. Mm -hmm. um, with regards to what Israel's um, aims are here, you know, mm -hmm. I, because it's hard to know what the goal is. Uh, is mm -hmm. the goal just destroy Hamas? Is it, I mean, will what will happen if Hamas is destroying Gaza? Will Gaza be manageable uh, for Israel after this is all said and done? Uh, what do you think of those questions? Yeah, and that's that's really been the the question ever since 2007 when Hamas took over Gaza in the in the first place. Uh, is if you were to overthrow them, what happens next? And uh, over time. I mean, Netanyahu's strategy has essentially been to contain the problem, right? It's, uh, we'll have a war every couple of years. Uh, our casualties, thanks to the Iron Dome, thanks to our superior firepower, will most likely be low-er. Uh, and each time there's a war, we'll do enough damage to prevent there from being another war for a couple of years. Uh, and in some ways, I mean, that's, there's been a few news articles recently that uh, a couple of years ago, Netanyahu told the Likud party that, you know, Hamas being in power in Gaza is actually useful uh, because yeah, they, there were uh, even they, articles they, in um, times of Israel and Haaretz about this. So it, it's been covered. Exactly. In Israel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In Israeli news sources that, uh, you know, essentially, he's told them because members of the Likud party are like, why are we transferring money to Gaza? Why are we, you know, giving work permits for, for Gazans to enter Israel? And he said, essentially, we need to, you know, Hamas ruling Gaza is useful for us because, A, we don't want to do it. And B, uh, you know, anytime somebody a U.S. president or someone is pushing for a final negotiated two-state solution, we can say, well, we can't negotiate with Hamas. They're sworn to our destruction. Uh, now that, you know, that's that's presented as a, a cynical uh, position, uh, but I, and it, it is, don't get me wrong, uh, but it's, uh, it, it's built on a deeper fear in Israel, which is that suppose we make a deal with Mahmoud Abbas for two-state solution, you know, West Bank, Gaza Strip, or a Palestinian state. Next year, Hamas stages a coup in the West Bank, tears up the treaty, and declares another war uh, from, you know, and starts lobbing rockets and suicide bombers into Israel, you know, from territory overlooking Jerusalem, overlooking Tel Aviv and Ben Gurion Airport. Uh, you know, you can't take can't take it back after you sign a deal creating a country, right? Uh so then that, you know, that would be a a security disaster. I you know. People, especially on the Israeli right, have pointed to the Gaza pullout in 2005 as being the root of all the troubles with Gaza that have happened happened since then. Uh, so as far as the problem is that 
strategy has been blown out of the water now by this attack, right? It's it's not something that any country can really just deal with on a regular basis. Uh, and especially not a democratic country, right? Uh, but even in a, you know, in a non-democratic country, people would be, you know, there would be riots and, you know, a coup or something if a government allowed this sort of thing to go uh, without any any response. Um, and so, you know, the question is what comes next? And so far, I mean, I've mostly seen uh, Israeli officials talk about we're going to inflict a price. Well, that's what they've said every time Hamas launches an attack into Israel. Uh, and so that, you know, if they pursue the same strategy, which is maybe possibly limited ground incursion, uh, try to create enough destruction and inflict enough casualties on Hamas that rebuilding takes several years and they're not, they're temporarily not a threat, uh, or a reduced threat then Hamas has won this battle already, right? So, but then the other option is to militarily occupy the entire Gaza Strip, which would be um, probably a months-long siege, uh, probably the, the battle with ISIS for Mosul in 2016-2017 is probably the best uh, comparison there, which, you know, destroyed most of the city. There were thousands possibly tens of thousands of civilian casualties uh it was you know big refugee crisis and you know the city is only slowly being being rebuilt uh then you have to manage all sorts of you know you have refugees you have trying to sort out the who's a hamas fighter and who isn't um uh, and then there's a question of who's going to govern the place once once the campaign is over, right? Is Israel going to put it under direct military rule like it was from 1967 to 1994? Um, possibly. Uh, are they going to hand, try to hand it over to the Palestinian Authority, who's going to be you know, even weaker in terms of popular legitimacy than they are now? Uh, there's there's really no good options there. Um, you know, where do you take the internally displaced people? Do you take them into Israel, uh, into refugee camps? Uh, do you shuffle them around the Gaza Strip? You know, do you take them, send them to Egypt, which is something? That's I, I, well, that's discussed. a question yeah. of, but, uh -huh. but that's also a question of will Egypt accept them because it's a population of two million, so. Right. And Egypt has never accepted Palestinian refugees. In fact, that's why Gaza is so heavily populated today is because that was the only place after the 1948 war that Egypt allowed Palestinian refugees to live. You know, uh, you know who had fled many communities in what's now southern Israel and Egypt uh, you know, herded them all into the into the Gaza Strip. And 
that's why Gaza is so densely populated today, uh, which it was, there were cities there, but they were not, you know, it was not the massive urban sprawl of 2 million plus people in, in you know, in before 1948. Um, and Egypt, you know, has had, is governed by, you know, government that came to power in a military coup against the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, they have pursued a very harsh crackdown against the Muslim Brotherhood within Egypt. Uh, many leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt fled to the Gaza Strip. Uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, I can see why the Egyptian government could view taking in refugees from, from Gaza as a major security threat uh, as well. And then, you know, the... Uh, there's also the issue of if Egypt takes in refugees, will Israel ever allow them to go back? Uh, they didn't after 1948. They didn't after 1967. Uh, and you know, Egypt has said, I mean, their response to this initial proposal was this is an attempt to erase Palestine. In other words, they think, you know, if refugees leave Gaza, Israel will never let them back in and they will just stay in Egypt forever. Um so I, I was going to ask you about uh, the question of who will be defeated in this conflict. And it's it's too hard to really say that now. It's too early, basically. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I think you've argued that in a weird way, uh, Hamas has already had a certain early victory in all of this. Uh, is it possible that – and I, I'm not – I'm saying this in a very cold way. It's not about an endorsement or – you know, anything mm -hmm. like that. But can Hamas win this round with Israel is what I'm saying or asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think it's definitely possible that they do uh, when because of what I mean, you have to when you talk about victory and defeat, you have to think in terms of strategic aims and whether they were achieved. Uh, if you know, if Hamas's goal is to disrupt Israeli Arab normalization, inflict pain and suffering on Israelis uh, through just sheer brutality that the government, Israeli government's unable to stop. They've already done those things, uh, possibly. It remains to be seen if normalization is affected. Um, but if they can do those things and remain in power once this is over, then they've they've won. Um, and I don't think, you know, the do, way... Do you think only it's way... even possible, though? Because, like, what, what people keep saying is, Hamas is going to be bulldozed out. They will be completely destroyed. You're saying it's possible that, well, maybe not. Yeah, I and so yeah, that's the third key is they have to they have to remain in power once this is over, and I do think it's it's definitely possible. Um, so, uh, the war in Lebanon in 2006, right? Uh, Hezbollah's goal was to release, to capture hostages to trade for 
a handful of Lebanese uh, convicted terrorists who were still in Israeli prisons. Um, they pulled this off before uh, without sparking a major war. Uh, they had uh, the bodies of three Israeli soldiers, and then they lured some mafia kingpin to Beirut that he thought he was setting up a drug deal, and then they kidnapped him. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he was an Israeli citizen. Uh, they uh, um, yeah, they uh, so their goal was to free these individuals. Uh, now, Hassan Nasrallah later said, I didn't expect this level of military response from Israel to this attack across the border. If I had if I'd known what was going to happen, I wouldn't have done it, he said. Uh, but even then, you know, with the massive military response that that occurred uh, from into Lebanon, Hezbollah managed to hold their own. You know, after that initial attack, they were on the defensive the entire time. Same with Hamas in Gaza, right? The initial attack this weekend, now they're on the defensive. They are uh, um, you know, they're they're preparing for a defensive war. Uh, now, Hezbollah had been preparing for a defensive war for years uh, with tunnels and bunkers and uh, just extensive fortifications. And Israel succeeded in advancing into Lebanon, uh, to, but they, you know, they, they weren't able to achieve their objectives. They didn't get the, the bodies of the soldiers back. They didn't... Uh, uh, drive Hezbollah away from the border. Um, they called off their final offensive because the amount of casualties was just too heavy. Uh, and so Hezbollah emerged from the conflict saying that they'd, they'd won. And then they ended up getting those prisoners released in return for the, the bodies of the soldiers that they had, uh, they had taken. Um, and uh, so in in Gaza, Hamas has also had a chance to prepare the ground extensively with, you know, various entrenchments and bunkers, booby traps, you know, anti-tank weapons, bombs, mines. Uh, we, we, all of these weapons were used in the... Gaza War in 2014, when Israel launched a major incursion, uh, and so uh, there's th th that's uh, part of it that you know makes it difficult. Um, I Hamas and Hezbollah both have. This is going to sound may sound odd to some of our listeners to say, but they both have professional militaries that are, you know, paid volunteer, all volunteer professional militaries that have been training for a long time. Uh, they have, uh, you know, 
Israel has a conscript army uh, that's, you know, in times of crisis relies on calling up part-time reservists. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I know people in Israel that are being called up now that are, they're like mm -hmm. baristas at their local, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you may or may not go to reserve training once a year in order to keep some basic, you know, marksmanship skills up. Uh, so even though, you know, Hamas's forces are going to be heavily outnumbered, uh, they do have possibly a qualitative advantage in some ways. Um, now, that hasn't necessarily been the case in the past. Um, Hamas is part of the, the period where they were really the victimhood narrative was the main strategy. I mean, Hamas, part of that narrative was to set the expectation for their military capabilities to be so low that you know it was it, there were no expectations of of effective fighting uh that's that's clearly changed because they've you know well i mean it's a simple fact of across all of history that uh, you know armies that fight more often tend to if they don't get wiped out they get better uh and you know, we've, we've definitely seen that in the Palestinian conflict. If you look at you know, the first Intifada versus the second Intifada versus now, uh, this growth in military capabilities. I mean, you've seen that in Afghanistan with the Taliban as well. Um, and I just saw in the news today and the important times of Israel that uh, the, the massacre at Kibbutz Ba'eri, uh, an entire... 20-man squad, special forces squad was wiped out trying to stop the massacre. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, there's, now, I don't mean to say that Hamas is 10 feet tall militarily. They clearly have a lot of, of weaknesses. Uh, they have, Israel has near total air superiority. Right. Uh, they have huge firepower superiority, but Hamas has the ability to, you know, uh, hold up uh, to essentially use the Gaza population as a giant human shield uh, to, uh, you know, ensure that there's a large civilian death toll and, uh, you know, to... Uh, try to ex inflict as many casualties as possible that Israel's forced to call off the offensive. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the, yeah, the the strategy, I think, is what we're going to see on in the next couple of weeks. I was just going to say, in regards to that broader point, uh, do you think that, I, I think that there's this assumption that because the Israeli military is bigger, you know, it would just necessarily bulldoze Hamas when, mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen how, you know, even a country like the U.S. can go into Afghanistan, be there for 20 years, only for the Taliban to get back in power. Uh, do, why do you think people make that mistake? I mean, if you have any thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. I think the Afghanistan comparison is a very different situation. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think there's really much comparison to be, to be made there. Um, I'm not sure that, 
Yeah, well, I mean, Afghanistan is a very mountainous country. There are many places to hide, right? Uh, the amount of troops that it would take to control every mountain valley is, you know, is tremendous. Uh, Gaza, is, as we know, is a very small place. Um, it's... the I think... The assumption, uh, though I do think there's a related assumption, uh, there's a related factor that goes in, and this is going to get down to demographics. And, you know, Afghanistan, between 2001 and 20, 2021, despite the war, despite all the destruction and death that the war in Afghanistan caused, Afghanistan's population doubled in those 20 years. Uh, in Gaza, half the population is under 20. Um, it's just a, uh, a tremendous um, reservoir of manpower to recruit from uh, that uh, that allows both the Taliban and Hamas to take tremendous casualties and still be able to put a you know military forces back into the field before we close out um with regards to the hamas attack you know all i'm seeing in israeli media is really heated argument over how did this happen and who who's mm -hmm. responsible for it in israel who's mm -hmm. responsible for the lack of security uh, you mentioned earlier Hamas and those uh, work visas. I've seen people bring that up. All the security, many security forces, I should say, being um, in the West Bank to help with the settlements. Uh, mm -hmm. Settlement expansion is uh, another reason that this happened, that there was this operational intel failure. Uh, but I guess from your perspective, what do you think uh, the Netanyahu government's approach to Israel uh, and also just the Palestinian in general. How do you what what do you think is laid bare about those issues uh, when it comes to uh, how Netanyahu has handled these things? Because I, I know a lot of people have argued that this shows that uh, Netanyahu's approach has been unsustainable. Yeah, um, I want to be careful on this because trying to talk about the the long term, you know the deep causes of things that happened over the weekend can get can get tricky. I'm sure there will be a, a government inquiry in Israel like there was after the 1973 war. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I, what was... Well, I was going to say, I'm sorry if I wasn't very clear in how I worded things, but I'm also trying to be overly careful. So, but I, I think, you know, yeah. the general gist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I I, I really don't know uh what caused this um i mean it was clearly an intelligence failure uh it was clearly a uh you know some people have talked about there being an over-reliance on technical intelligence uh but you know it's uh it's it's hard to say exactly where blame lies at this at this stage um 
you know, it would be easy to say, well, Netanyahu's strategy for dealing with the Gaza Strip was all wrong. Um, he should have been harsher. He should have removed Hamas from power in 2014 or, or something. But that, I mean, the problem was there weren't, there aren't good options now. There weren't good options in 2014 either. Um, so, you know, the options haven't improved. Uh, and, you know, well, I, I want to be careful too, because I'm not trying to exonerate Netanyahu for, for what happened, but, uh, you know, it's, there weren't, it wasn't obvious in 2014 that this would happen. You know, it's, <laughs> I've been to Israel many times, uh, you know, I would never have dreamed, now granted, I'm not privy to intelligence information or anything of the sort, but I would never have dreamed that, you know, Ofakim would be an unsafe place. Like, I've never had any reason to go to Ofakim, but if I did, I wouldn't have avoided it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have, I mean, even places closer than than that, I, you know, there's no reason I wouldn't have had any reason to not like take my family there for the weekend. If like somebody had invited us or something. Um, yeah. Now. So on the other hand, you know, this, this type of attack, you know, could have been foreseen if there was a limited number of, of soldiers guarding the fence. Um, and that's that's clearly a risk that the government and the IDF decided was worth taking at that uh, that juncture. Um, so, yeah, I mean, without a doubt, it's an intelligence failure as to what caused this failure and who's to blame. I, I really I really don't have uh, any any sort of pronouncement to make at the, this juncture. I think that's absolutely fair. Um, one of the last things I wanted to ask you that, that's in my notes is, uh, is there anything from your academic field of expertise, you know, this, uh, you know, ancient history uh, that you think can be brought to the table to better understand the unfolding mm -hmm. events now? Mm -hmm. um, I would say as a, as a specialist in the Assyrian empire, um, uh, the strategy of atrocity is one thing that, you know, the Assyrians are famous for bragging about how they, you know, humiliated and tortured and gruesomely killed in symbolic ways the leaders of their enemies. Uh, atrocity, so there's, there's multiple ways atrocities happen in a war. I mean, one is like, you know, at Miley, for example, the Miley massacre was not official U.S. policy in Vietnam, right? It was committed by a unit on their own initiative. Now, there were certain aspects of U.S. policy in Vietnam that made something like that more likely to happen. Uh, but, you know, nobody, Westmoreland, General Westmoreland didn't order them to go massac massacre that village. Um what atrocities like that 
are caused by is poor discipline. You know, there's often this uh, this perception that you know all this military unit had just snapped under the stress of like all the fighting, and you know they couldn't uh, take it anymore and broke mentally or something. No, that's not what happens in this. It's usually it's units like the AmeriCal division that, you know, where the company that committed the Miley massacre was from, they did, they had barely seen fighting before that. Uh, it's those sort of atrocities are usually committed by poorly disciplined, poorly trained units uh, that often have not seen very much fighting uh, beforehand. Um, now, this is something what happened this weekend something totally different in terms of the you know the number of places that were attacked the you know just very clearly done with deliberate attempt to kill as many people as possible and, and uh, to film many, it you know i think that's where film it yes yes and to to film it and broadcast it around the world uh this is this is the isis playbook right uh, gain notoriety by being as brutal as possible and distributing it on the internet for the world to watch. Uh, and uh, doing that, yeah, that's that's a deliberate strategy. Uh, it's a deliberate strategy that had to have been decided on at, at the highest levels to uh, make this the plan um it's uh the kind of thing that yeah that uh you know your it's design atrocity is a strategy designed to send a message uh, and uh to draw lines and uh to provoke a a response uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, yeah, probably my, uh, my, uh, the insight I have from, from the, on that, that, uh, you know, atrocity is a deliberate type of strategy. Um, that's. So how, how does that strategy, can you give like a concrete example of how that strategy uh, can benefit a, an armed group or, or to better illustrate why they do it. Mm -hmm. um, so one great, uh, I guess, great example from outside the Middle East is uh, from, from the Balkans and the, the wars in Bosnia, Croatia, and the breakup of Yugoslavia. Uh, you know, you have people that are in armed groups from each side, the Croats, Serbs, and Bosniaks, um, and they would target civilians from the other side. And, you know, the goal is to produce a horrible crime against humanity that will cause retaliatory attacks from the other side. What this does is it draws a line, right? It's when if you're a villager somewhere now you know that 
the other side is going to kill you. You may not have been interested in joining a war up to this point. You're trying to sit it out. Well, now you know the other side's going to kill you. Who's going to protect you is whoever your own people are. In other uh, words, so so with this situation, it, it's almost, I mean, the, the bombing, I guess the gamble is, uh, will lead uh, many other Gazans to, even if they aren't a fan of Hamas, say, well, they're the ones that will protect me over this bombing campaign that Israel is doing. Exactly, exactly. Uh, atrocities build support within your own people uh because they have nowhere else to go to for protection if you know from the expected or actual retaliation uh this you know this also happens in in lebanon during the civil war um now i think that's part of the calculation for hamas but also you know isis was doing this in somewhat of a different way uh because a uh, there, it was a demonstration of the group's like radical purity, as like we are the the real strictest, most uh, the most Salafi jihadist of the Salafi jihadists, right? That uh, we're not afraid to of the world opinion and in doing things like this. Um, and it also, uh, I mean, it was it was propaganda for their own supporters in a way. It was like a proof of their ideological purity. Um, and I think there's some of that in this this as well. That's part of the, you know, armed. We're proving that armed resistance is viable uh, strategy for for Hamas. Uh, Real quick, because I, I've had people ask me about it. I, I've seen a lot of the Hamas ISIS comparisons, and uh, people will say, "Oh, well, the the comparison isn't like one to one." And my my usual response to that is, I think people are referring to the uh, the similarity and brutality. It doesn't mean that you know uh, Hamas mm -hmm. is like exactly like ISIS in every way in the way they do the attack. Do you see what I mean? Right. I mean, Hamas is not ISIS ideologically. Uh, you know, ISIS was about we need to abolish nation states and reestablish the caliphate. You know, Hamas is not interested in a caliphate and anywhere in the near future and is looking to establish an Islamist government in Palestine. Uh, it's, uh, it's, the similarity, I agree, is in the strategy. Um, it's the the use of media, the you know reveling in atrocity, the trying to kill as many civilians as possible to to uh, you know as a as a shock value tactic. Uh, but I think there's there's actually some more similarities that are not just in the you know the calculated use of atrocity as a strategy. Um, Could you speak to that ISIS, if you're okay with that? Yeah, yeah. ISIS, uh, when they took over Mosul, they used uh, small units, highly mobile, uh, you know, who very well coordinated, who appeared, you know, at many different points simultaneously to attack the Iraqi army and police, right? 
this is a strategy they learned from the Chechens. That's how the uh, Chechens recaptured Grozny in 1996. And there were a lot of Chechens in ISIS uh, that carried a lot of military experience to that organization. Um, the uh, ISIS or the Hamas attacks this weekend, I think, followed some of that same strategy. Uh, now, I don't know to the extent that anyone advised them directly uh, or that anyone or that they just studied the attacks um, and applied those lessons to their their own planning probably the latter um, but that that strategy uh, which you know Isis used to avoid massing troops that could be hit by air power right uh, you know there's like five pickup trucks here five pickup trucks there 10 motorcycles here 10 motorcycles there and you know, even though they were heavily outnumbered, they captured Mosul because it's like they were attacking 50 places at once. Uh, that That's uh, just another way that I see a sort of ISIS-like tactics being adopted by Hamas. I saw you tweet it. Uh, if someone sees people of Group X as being less than human, videos of people of Group X being brutalized, humiliated, and murdered – only confirm their priors and i i saw that you tweeted that and you also uh replied with that same tweet to a mm -hmm. few people uh why did you sort of repeat that tweet on your social media uh and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about these videos in relationship to the strategy of hamas yeah so i uh i think it's there's a couple ways and one is i saw a lot of people you know english language tweets uh you know trying to excuse these sort of atrocities like and uh you know you think well how can someone watch some of these videos and and think that um you know they would say well you know everyone in israel is a reservist so killing them is is okay or there's no such thing as uh as civilians in a settler colonialist society um and really i mean to be clear these are completely morally bankrupt statements uh but you know thinking about how someone can make that statement you know and this goes the other way too if you know people who are saying kill everyone in gaza and you know bulldoze the rubble into the sea Right. I've already seen the videos of people saying, uh, you know, flatten all of Gaza, kill all of the Palestinians. And I mean, I'm, it's weird because I'm horrified by both of these sentiments. Yeah, and it's, exactly. Yeah. 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 Because you're you know, a human being with a well-attuned conscience. Uh, <laughs> it's it's because. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, yeah, if you if you see a group of people, you already think that they're less than fully human for whatever reason when you see a video of other people treating them as less than fully human that is just confirmation in your mind even if you're not consciously thinking as that is confirmation that you were right to think of them in this way 
it's a very dark aspect of you know human psychology to contemplate uh it's you know it's the psychology of someone who sees somebody like injured and bleeding on the sidewalk and thinks what a loser and steps on their face that's <laughs> that's what you know it's the you know you see somebody who's down kick them uh but it's yeah it is the assumption that person that that person's already granted the assumption that people from group x are not fully human so video stories of people treating them as not being fully human it's merely a confirmation of what they already believe i guess in closing here i, I don't know if you have thoughts about this but i think for a lot of people emotions are running very high and there's a lot of personal things going on with this. I mean, my heart goes out to a lot of people. I, ha I have a lot of contacts in both Israel as well as Gaza. And also I should mention the West Bank. Um, <laughs> and I think emotions are very high right now uh, to the point where people are saying things that I think are very messed up. Uh, what yeah. would you want to say to both uh, pro-Palestinians and uh, sort of pro-Israeli voices when it comes to all of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, this is hard and really, I just want, I, this is going to sound like a very trite response to this question and I, I don't know how to make it not be trite. Uh, so I apologize if it comes out that way. Take a deep breath and think before you tweet. That is, <laughs> that much of our public discourse could be improved by this uh this type of of thing um now i've taught classes on modern middle east a couple times uh and one thing that i i say at the beginning of class i'm like this is going to be we're going to talk about issues that get a lot of people very emotionally involved invested in um we're going to um uh, you know we're going to read primary sources written by some really bad people. Uh, we're going to, uh, you know, just here's some ground rules for how this class is going to work. One, I, I, I like to just I put a devil's advocate rule in there. I'm like, anybody in this class could argue for a position that they do not hold just to play devil's advocate. Uh, without announcing it to the class. I may do this sometimes. I mean, I will do this sometimes. Uh, so just remember that, you know, just remember that this is a possibility so that we separate ideas from people. And then the other thing I have to, I rule I put in there is that, uh, everyone that we're reading about in this class is human and they we're going to try to understand their ideologies and motivations and uh you know we're going to read things by osama bin laden in this class uh we're gonna you know we're gonna read them and we're gonna analyze them as same as we do for you know any of the other primary sources we talk about in this class um and we're going to try to understand their 
worldviews and, and where they're coming from. And, you know, it's, you know, teaching the modern Middle East is always a very fraught, uh, fraught topic. I, both times when I, when I got my evaluations back, uh, students did say that they really appreciated the, uh, that, well, they thought I was very even-handed, and they were very impressed by that. Um, and now, you know, I I credit that to the way we analyzed the, you know, the way I talked about, you know, how we were going to approach these these sources and issues. Um, so, I think just trying to understand other views does not mean condoning what is what that person is doing or what they believe. It will put you in a better position to try to uh, understand what's going on and why. Uh, yeah, I was just going to add to that. And I think to, I think people really have to understand this is not the things we're talking about. I mean, there are real lives at stake. I mean, there are lives at stake exactly. right now in Gaza. And there are lives at stake in Israel, and I'm horrified by the attack mm -hmm. that happened. I, I think that people really need to step back and realize this is not uh, a football game. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. This is not a team sport where you pick a side and, and cheer for them. Yeah. I was also going to say, I mean, I think we all have our biases, too, when it comes to these topics. But, you know, that doesn't mean we have to give up our moral um, thinking on things. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you can't you can't relativize everything in terms of of, you know, whether violence is right or wrong and, and or certain kinds of violence are right or wrong. Otherwise, you have no leg to stand on to condemn any sort of violence and you know well they did bad things to us is the argument that's been used to justify every war crime and atrocity in the history of human atrocities uh, it, you know <laughs> um and if you you know your only basis for that is kind of whether a war crime is good or bad is a sort of relativistic kind of oppressed oppressor dichotomy well anyone can claim to be oppressed uh and anyone can claim to be uh that they're only doing this because of what somebody else did uh and ultimately that leaves you no leg to stand on to condemn anyone uh Right. If you know, if you say, well, this attack this weekend was a result of, you know, all this such and such years of apartheid and colonialism. Well, you know, is the, the flattened Gaza crowd can just say, well, this is because of, you know, so many years of terrorism and crimes against humanity that we did, you know. You can you can justify any side with of anything with this argument you know world war ii you know i hate to trigger godwin's law but you know the nazis are kind of who we go to for our, our black and white moral reasoning uh you know the germans not the nazis were constantly saying you know, like 
all of you know this is all justified because of the horrors inflicted on germany in world war one and you know the treaty of versailles and all the you know the the economic disasters of the early 1920s and this you know this uh this justifies us doing you know whatever you know crime against humanity we're doing right now uh you know ultimately these these arguments give you no no leg to to stand on and can be used to justify pretty much anything that you can possibly imagine and a lot of things that you can't yet on the flip side of that and i will let you go after this but on the flip side of that do you think there's also a problem where i feel like a lot of people uh that are lay people to these subjects that feel like commenting on them and i'm not saying i'm like some super expert either um but i feel like a lot of i think there is context needed like we need to understand the historical context of how these things happen without using that context to justify atrocities. And I think part of the problem that we have when talking about uh, these issues is that most people really don't know the history. They don't know the players involved. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not even sure uh, some people, I see people not even differentiate between Hamas, the PLO, uh, or just seeing (laughs) Hamas and Palestinians as the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so there's a lot Mm -hmm. of inflation that goes on and people just not knowing what they're talking about. Do you think there's a need for maybe better education if we're going to talk about these subjects. Yeah, certainly there there is. Uh and I mean this conflict especially is one you can spend a lifetime studying and uh yeah, I I I do think that's that's especially the case in the United States. Um, there's and Europe actually probably even more so in my experience in in Europe than in the United States. There's very little understanding of the conflict. Uh, there's very little understanding of its historical roots. Like uh, I don't know. I I remember talking to a couple in in Britain. I was there living there a couple years ago, and one of them said. You know, the the one one said, well, I, I just absolutely hate the state of Israel. And then other one said, yeah, America created Israel. And then the first partner said, no, it was it was British colonialism that created Israel. And I'm like, these people have literally no earthly clue, you know, what happened during the mandate period uh how israel came into being whose side britain was even on in 1948 uh and it's you know but they're you know forming this this sort of these opinions um and yeah i i do think i'm not I I think I'll be, I say education is hugely important and elevates discourse and discussion and helps people solve problems. Uh, ultimately, though, I don't think it's sufficient to solve you know the fundamental problems of the conflict. Like at the end of the day, there's still two different groups of people who claim the same spot of land is exclusively right. or you know is 
primarily theirs and they can't both have it. Uh, and, you know, though ultimately, you know, education only takes you so far in that that type of, of disagreement. No, I, I agree with you. I just meant in terms of if people in, like, say, the U.S. right now are going to engage with the topic, I think they should at least have the courtesy to know what they're talking about on some level. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, people, yes. Uh, that was kind of goes back to my uh, think before you tweet comment uh, and think about how this might sound if it was applied to, you know, another group of people um whatever it is that you're that you're advocating um then think about whether you should say it in the in the first place uh, well i want to thank you again uh christopher w jones for coming on parallax thank you. you also have a blog can you tell my listeners about that briefly uh it's called gates of nineveh.wordpress.com i uh used it to uh uh track and document ISIS destructions of cultural heritage sites. Uh, I'm happy to say that it has not been active in uh, uh, some time due to their no longer being active ISIS destructions of cultural heritage sites. Uh, but the archives are still online uh, for um, any interested researcher to peruse. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found enlightening my conversation with Christopher W. Jones. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.